Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Good to be back with you this week after being gone last week to the marriage encounter. And as everyone um, is so ready to tell me how good of a job Kyle did filling in for me while I was gone. Yes. No, that's fine. Go ahead. I'm used to it now. Go ahead. But uh, no, seriously, he always does do a good job of filling in. But we're going to finish up uh, part two of this short series that we began two weeks ago titled Identity Crisis, where we've been looking at what it means to have our identity in Christ. And by identity in Christ, we're talking about not just knowing who you are, but knowing whose you are. That's part of that process. Acts 17, 28, the apostle Paul put it this way. For in him, we live and move and have our being. Having our identity in Christ is best summed up in how we live our lives and what we're living for. Basically, that's what it comes down to. How we live our lives and what we're living for. And note that Paul makes sure that we know that this is done in him. He says, for in him. Our identity is only found in Jesus in his letter to the church at Rome. He warns us against looking to anything or anyone other than Christ for our identity. In Romans 12, verse 2, this is the message paraphrase. And I I use this version because I think it really kind of expounds on it uh, in a very clear way. He says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed. Now watch this. Not just changed, right? Not just changed, but changed from the inside out. And that's a problem, isn't it? Because when we want change, we want God to change him. Or we want God to change her. Or we want God to change it. No, no, no. Any lasting change, and God knows this, any, any lasting change has to start on the inside. On the inside. Readily, he says readily, recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you in your temperament, in your attitude, in your marriage, in your family, at, at, at work, at school. In every facet of life, God wants to bring, bring the best out of you. And then he finishes with this statement, develop well-informed maturity in you. So a huge part of our spiritual maturity is knowing who we are in Christ, something that the rich young ruler who we looked at in our first message, something that he failed to recognize because he placed his security and his identity in his wealth and possessions. And ultimately, ultimately, those are the things that ended up, uh, in the Apostle Paul's words, dragging him down to the point that when Jesus made him the offer of a lifetime, he turned it down. Walked away. Didn't just walk away, but it says he walked away sad and sorrowful. And that's been our big idea for this series. Anytime we look to anything or anyone other than Jesus for our identity and security, we'll end up, just like the rich young ruler, walking away empty and sorrowful. Once we surrender our life to Jesus and begin to follow him, God begins, this is, you need, to, you need to understand this. Once we begin to follow Jesus, he begins to move on our hearts to change our lives in a way from the inside out. Change the way that we think. Changes our temperament. 
uh, gives us an eternal mindset as opposed to a temporal mindset. And, and again, that's that part of the from the inside out that Paul mentioned in Romans 12 too. Physically speaking, think about this. Physically speaking, the most important organ in our body is our heart. It, it's one of the few organs in our body that we absolutely cannot do without, right? I mean, you know, you can do without a lot of your organs, but you don't have a heart, you're not around, right? It's pretty simple, right? Physically speaking, the heart is the most important part of our body. But you know, that is true spiritually as well. Spiritually as well. You know that year in and year out, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in the world. But did you know there's also a spiritual cardiovascular disease that takes place? That's why Solomon tells us in Proverbs 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart. You got to guard your heart. For it is the wellspring, some translations say it is the, it's where the issues of life come from. In other words, what he's saying there is that the, the real issues of life, the things that really matter, begin on the inside of us, on the inside of us. And, and, and that's very clear when you look at Jesus' teaching. Jesus was very intentional about focusing on inward change, not outward change, because he knew that lasting change only happens when it begins on the inside, in our heart. Which, by the way, is the simplest way to describe the difference between the Old and the New Testaments. The Old Testament was all about external changes, right? That's why we have the Ten Commandments. Don't do this. Don't do that. Or do this. Do that, right? Thou shalt not. It was all about external behavior. Jesus comes along and made comments like this. And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Remember when Jesus said, and he said that a lot usually to the Pharisees. You have heard it said, and then he would say whatever the law said, but I say unto you, for example, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you have lust, where? In your heart, you're already on the pathway to adultery, right? In other words, the adultery isn't happening because of a lack of discipline. It's happening because something's not right with your heart. Your heart's not right with God. If you take care of what's on the inside in your heart, then the actions will follow suit. Jesus would always direct people away from the symptoms, their external behavior, and circle back to the root cause, which is what was taking place on the inside of them. A great example of this is when some Pharisees came to Jesus once and tried to trick him by asking him a question about divorce. It's found in Matthew 19, begins at verse 3. It says, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. They were trying to trick him into saying something that they could use to accuse him. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? But notice Jesus doesn't fall for their trap. He directs them back to the law, the Old Testament, verse 4, Matthew 19. Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. In other words, he said, why are you asking me? You know where the answer's at, right? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And by the way, I know we're living in a culture where psychology trumps biology, Hello, we're living in a culture where psychology trumps biology, and that's why everyone's getting confused, right? I'm going to tell you, God's not confused. God is not confused. Let's read on, verses 5 and 6, Matthew 19. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Verse 6, since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So Jesus answers their trick question but, but, you know, as he always did. But this time, 
you know, they'd been burned by Jesus before. So this time they have a follow-up trick question to his reply to their first trick question, right? So in verse seven, this is their follow-up trick question. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. All right, Jesus, if divorce wasn't God's original plan, how come Moses permitted it? And I want you to look close at Jesus' answer here in Matthew 19, verse eight. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your, what? Hard hearts. But it was not what God originally intended. Anytime you have something taking place in your life that God didn't originally intend, you basically have two choices. You can make yourself miserable by trying to address the external behavior, or you can address the root cause and go directly to the heart of the matter. Again, because all our external behavior stems from things that have first taken place on the inside of us, in our heart. And we actually see how important our heart is in our relationship with God in the instructions that he gave the high priest in the Old Testament whenever that he would come before uh, him, come before God on behalf of the people. And so they, the, the high priests were instructed to put on this, this breastplate with some stones on it. And but, you know, about now you're saying, oh, well, time out, Pastor. Wait, I, I'm not a priest, so this doesn't apply to me. Oh, no, no, no. First Peter. Peter tells us that you are a priest. Not in the sense like you do what I do, like you're, you're not a pastor, but you are a priest in this sense. You can approach God anytime. They couldn't do that in the old, in the, under the old covenant. Only one person, the high priest, could do that. One of the lesser-known miracles of the resurrection, remember what happened in the temple when Jesus died? That, that veil in the, in that, that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone, that was ripped. At that point, we're all priests at that point because anyone can come before God. So don't think that this doesn't apply to you. It does. But the priests were instructed to wear this breastplate, this breastpiece. And, and I want to go ahead and read this in Exodus 28 because Moses kind of explains how this works. This also kind of explains why God puts such a premium on our hearts being right before we come before him. Exodus 28, verse 29. Whenever Aaron, and Aaron was the high priest, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel, and say these next three words with me, over his heart. One more time. Over his heart. On the breastplate of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Okay, whenever the high priest would, would come into the presence of God uh, on behalf of the people, he was to put on this breastplate, and on the breastplate were, were four rows of three gemstones, each gemstone having one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on it. And, and this, this was, see, it was symbolized that, that the high priest, it wasn't just enough that the high priest worked for the people, he also had to bear their burdens as well. So that's what that was symbolic of, bearing the names of the tribes of Israel on the breastplate over his heart. In the same way, every time you come before God, and, and this is true of all of us, anytime we come before God, you, me, we're all bearing something on our heart. Something has been written over our heart. Let me put it this way. We are the sum total of everything that's happened to us up until this point in our lives. All of our life experiences have impacted our heart in, in some fashion. That's, why, that, you know, that's one reason why there's so much division and polarization in our country today, because we all understand and interpret uh, things in life through, through the grid of the filter of what we experienced. 
And that's why two people can look at the same thing and have completely different opinions about it. All of our life experiences can be summed up in these four words. Our pain, our past, our problems, and people. Right? All of our life experiences can be summed up, can be distilled down to those four things. Our pain, our past, problems, and people. And we all have these. And just as the high priest bore the burden of the nation of Israel as represented on those gemstones by the 12 names of the 12 tribes that he wore on the breastplate, as he came into God's presence, so also do we bear the names of the things that we've experienced, good and bad, on our heart when we come before God. And these life experiences help shape our convictions, our decisions, and the choices that we make. But, and here, here's the really interesting part. In addition to the 12 names of the tribes of Israel on those, on those stones, there were a couple other things that they were to have on this breastplate as well. Things that were called the Urim and the Thummim. Let's read it in verse 30, Exodus 28. Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. Now, Old Testament scholars are divided on what the Urim and Thummim were. Uh, frankly, no one knows for sure exactly what they were. Here's what we do know. We do know that they were always used in the context of consulting, seeking God for guidance and direction. So, so for that reason, some scholars think that it was like maybe a couple of sticks or a couple of rocks, something that they would kind of throw like, like I hate to even use this illustration, like dice, because that makes it sound like gambling or random. We don't know how they work. Seriously, we don't know how. But God used the Urim and the Thummim to bring guidance and direction to the high priest, right? Now, here's what we do know. We also know the meaning of these words. Urim, that's M, M. Urim. Want to make sure you're awake, right? Urim means literally lights, lights. Thummim means perfections or wholeness. But what's really interesting about this word thummim, it is actually the plural for the word integrity. Thumb, T-H-U-M, the English transliteration, is, is integrity or whole or completeness. Thummim, that thing that they would put on them, was, was integrities. Integrities. I think the best way to understand this in the context of our English language would be to look at another English word that comes from the word integrity. And for all you math majors, you know what, a, what an integer is, right? What is an integer? It's a whole number. Integer is a whole number. We get our word integrity from the word integer. Now, one of the laws of hermeneutics or, or, or Bible study is this thing called the law of first usage. Where does that word or that truth or that concept first appear in the Bible because oftentimes how it's used there kind of brings context to all the other places that we see it in the Bible, all right? The word integrity first appears in Genesis chapter 20, and I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory. Abraham and Sarah, they're on their way to Canaan, and uh, along this journey, they had to pass through some enemy territory, um, and remember back then, uh, you, you kind of pass through enemy territory at your own risk, you know, because it was kind of might makes right back then. 
And, and so, you know, that, that opposing ruler of that land, they, they could do anything they wanted. And so uh, we're told that Sarah was a beautiful woman. And so uh, Abraham, the little stand-up guy here, comes up with this ingenious plan. And you wives are going to love this. Uh, he tells Sarah, he says, hey, when we go through the enemy territory, uh, tell everyone that you're my sister. Yeah, a real stand-up guy. Don't you love this guy, right? Hey, it gets better. This is the second time he did it. He did it back in Genesis 12, too, with, with Pharaoh. So, but, but, but they, they come up with this plan. When we're passing through this territory, you tell them that you're my sister. Why? Because if they find out that she's his wife, they're going to kill him. And then Abimelech is the king's name. Abimelech will just take Sarah as, you know, add him to his harem of wives, right? So they come up with this plan uh, that they're going to tell everyone that Sarah is uh, his sister. Sure enough, they're going through a land called Gerar. Abimelech finds out that there's this married couple coming through. Man, this guy's got a looker for a wife, you know. And so, so he goes out and they say, oh, no, she's my sister. So sure enough, he takes Sarah back to the palace, right? But that night, before Abimelech consummates this marriage with Sarah, God appears to him in a dream. This, you guys should read your Bible sometime. This is a fascinating story. God appears to him in a dream, and basically this is what he tells him. He said, hey, you're a dead man because that gal you took, that's someone else's wife. So let's pick up here in Genesis 20, verse 5. Here is Abimelech's response when God appeared to him in a dream and protected him from violating the, this, this, is, this is what he says to God. Did he, Abraham, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? Now watch close this next phrase. In the integrity of my, this is the first time this word appears, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God's reply to this king. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the, and here's our phrase again, integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Twice we see that phrase, integrity of heart. What Abimelech is saying here, here's basically what he's saying. He's like, God says, hey, that, 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 you know, you're a dead man because that's another man's wife. Here's what Abimelech, honest to God, I didn't know. That's what he's saying. Honest, honest, God, I didn't know. Question, any, any, growing up as a kid, anyone ever said, honest to God? Huh? I, there was a kid in a network of friends I ran with. That's when you knew he was lying. <laughs> honest to God. Oh, he's lying. We know he's lying, right? The point being, I want you to see the power of an open, honest, whole heart before God. Because in this case, it spared a king's life. It spared a king's life. And, and back then, if the high priest, I mean, it was a life or death situation because if, if the high priest, they would actually tie a rope around the high priest's ankle. You know why? Because if he went before God and he wasn't right with God and there was something in his heart, God would strike him dead. I know, I know. Aren't you glad you don't live under the old covenant? But once he's dead, no one can go in there and get him or they'd be dead. So they would actually tie a rope around his ankle. And if his heart wasn't right and God struck him dead, they'd drag him back out. Seriously. So it was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. One of the most important steps in your spiritual journey is letting God heal your heart. Because if our heart never gets healed, we'll never really fully discover our identity in Christ. And eventually, listen, eventually those four Ps they're going to catch up with you, right? Your pain, 
your past, your problems, people. They're going to overwhelm you. You'll still make it to heaven. Yeah, you still might make it to heaven, but you're going to be miserable along the way because your heart is not right with God. So don't, don't settle for ordinary when God has called us to extraordinary. Don't let the culture around you, the pain of your past, even the devil himself define your future because he will. Just like God writes things over our heart, the devil does too. So does our culture writes things over our heart. In fact, this is, this is really illustrated well in the life of Daniel and three of his friends. This took place at a time in history when God's people had rejected him and started worshiping idols. And so finally, God just took his hand of protection off of Israel. And sure enough, Babylon came and, and you know, ransacked him and, and destroyed the city. And, but, but what they would always do, they would always take the best and the brightest from whoever they were attacking, and then they would transplant them back to their hometown, and, or to the capital of Babylon, and then they would indoctrinate them and basically basically change their identity. That, that's, what, that's, that's what they did. So let's read this. This is what happens in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Then the king, which was Nebuchadnezzar, uh, ordered Ashpenaz, and Ashpenaz was a devil of a guy that he was just not, not a good guy at all. Chief of his court, chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Verse four, young men, see that? Young men, that, that, that's by design. The devil still does that today. Get them while they're young. Get them while they're in college. You know, get, get them while they're still trying to form their convictions, while they're still pliable in, 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 that, in that area of their life, right? That's why there's an all-out assault today on young people where the devil's writing things over their hearts, indoctrinating them on things that will bring confusion and, and push them away from God. Without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. See that? The goal was to change their identity. That's what they were trying to do. Verse 5. Daniel 1, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Verse 6, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, and then you're probably not going to recognize these next three names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the reason you don't recognize those names is because those were their Hebrew names. Most of us know Daniel's friends by their Babylonian names, the names that they were given after taken into captivity. Verse 7, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Or for those of you who grew up with VeggieTales, Rack, Shack, and Benny. <laughs> what most people don't realize is that those names, they have their meaning as well. Daniel, Daniel meant, means God is my judge. God is my judge. I'm going to live my life by the judgments and statutes of God's word. Ashpenaz changed Daniel's name from God is my judge to a feminine name. Belshazzar, which means lady protect the king. Isn't that interesting? Lady protect the king. The subliminal message in this name change is confused identity. It's confused identity, and this is happening in our culture today. People are confused about who they are and why they're here, and, and see that the world's answer to this is gender-affirming care. No, these young people need to know uh, that, hey, you don't need to mutilate your bodies. No, 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 no. You need to find your identity in Christ. 
You need to find your identity in Christ and who he made you to be. So they changed Daniel's name from God is my judge to lady protect the king. They changed Hananiah's name from Hananiah, which was Yahweh's been gracious. In other words, God is just so good and amazing to me. They changed it to Shadrach. I am fearful of God. God isn't good. God's not for you. He's against you. And if you don't behave, he's going to strike you with a lightning bolt and leave a grease spot right there where you're sitting. You, you can't trust God. He's not, right? And what we end up here with is distorted spirituality, a wrong view of God. And there's a lot of people that have a distorted spirit. They, they actually view God as some big divine, you know, dictator up there They're just waiting for us to step out of line or something. You don't want to serve him. That's no fun serving God. No, no, no. That's a lie. That, that's a lie. A lie to distort your view and understanding of who God really is. The devil changed Daniel's name from God is my judge to lady protect the king. He changed Hananiah's name from God is good to God is not good. You need to be afraid of him. He changed Mishael, who, who is what God is. That's what Mishael means. Who is? In other words, it's like, who's like God? There's no one like our God. And they changed his name to Meshach, which means I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. In other words, wounded emotions. Wounded emotions. And wounded emotions hinder our ability to hear from God. And then Azariah means Yahweh has helped. God has helped. And they changed his name to Abednego, which, which means literally servant of Nebo, Nebo means to prophesy. In other words, you don't need to listen to what God has to say about you. You don't need to listen to what God has to say about you. You can find your own way. You can find your own way. In other words, redirected purpose. Redirected purpose. Some of you, you've allowed your network of friends or the culture of your workplace or maybe a bad traumatic experience. Write a name over your heart. That's not the name that God gave you. In fact, that's why you're where you're at today. That's where you find yourself today. Because you say, well, you know, it is, I've already made the decision. I'm already there. No, no, no. If that happens to be you, I've got good news for you. You don't have to stay in the mess you're in today. You don't have to do that because God's got a different name and a different destination for you. Think about it. All throughout the Bible, every time God did something significant in someone's life, every time he changed the course and destiny of someone's life, he changed their name as well, didn't he? Didn't he? Abraham, Abram to Abraham. Sarai to Sarah. Jacob to Israel. Simon to Peter. Saul to Paul. If you'll let him, God will change your name as well, give you a new name. Write a new name over your heart give you a new destiny and purpose. See, our God has this supernatural ability to somehow take the mess that we've made of our lives and turn them into something extraordinary. You know, it's a long way from Oklahoma City to Dallas, Texas, when you drive through Minneapolis <laughs> to the uninformed. That's a reference to a time in my life when uh, I led a traumatic event write something over my heart, and, and because I let it stay there, when I would come before God seeking God's guidance and direction, I wasn't being honest with him. 
God was calling me back to Bible school. And I, and I, and I, again, I was just, I was too wounded by what had happened, some things that had happened. So I couldn't, I couldn't hear from God clearly. And what should have been a three hour, 177 mile trip turned into a 1900 mile, 11 month trip. But you know what? Once I got my heart right with God, he got us back on track. Here's my point. We still made it. You can still make it. It's not too late. If you make sure you just keep your heart open and honest before God. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, according to his purpose. Finding your identity in Christ is a pathway, a pathway that includes these four things. Let the one who designed me define me. We look to him, we look to his word for our identity. Why? Because that's what the instruction manual says. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. This is why we are unashamedly pro-life at Family Church. Unashamedly pro-life. God had his hand on you when you were still in your mother's womb. You're not an embryo. You're a person. The psalmist continues, verse 14, Psalm 139. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. For your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. If you want to know who you are and whose you are, you need to let the one who designed you define you. Then you need to see God the right way for who he really is. He's a God who loves you. He's a God who's for you, not against you. And I know that might be hard for some people to accept, but you need to know that. No one has, is, or will ever love you like God does. No one. No one. Psalm 139, verse 17, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. Really? Yeah. He knows what you did last night. He still loves you. Knows what you did last week, still loves you. Knows what you did last year. All right. Does he approve? No. No, he doesn't approve. He loves you too much to let you stay there. All right. But he sees you for who you can become. The third step on this journey is allow God to heal my heart. You can't help people who need help. You can only help people who want help. You got to want it. You got to want it. And those who want help are those who invite Jesus to search their heart. They're the, they're the ones that join a growth group. They're the ones who begin serving on one of our dream teams. They're the ones that have no problem beginning to hold themselves accountable before God. Psalm 139, 23, and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And then the fourth step on this journey Invite God into my future. Determine that from this day forward that you will live your life for Jesus. Psalm 139, verse 24, lead me along the path of everlasting life. That's not just talking about heaven. That everlasting life is now. That abundant life that Jesus said that he came to bring us, heaven's part of it, but it begins now. The moment you accept him, that's when that eternal, that abundant life begins. God wants you to know he's got a different name and a new identity for you. The last chapter of your life hasn't been written yet. And if you'll surrender your life completely to him and let him heal your heart, 
He'll turn your life around. He will only make your life better. He'll make you better at life. But here's the deal. I'm going to pray for you here in a minute, and, I, and, and I'd like to be able to tell you that as soon as I'm done praying, you're all going to be good to go, right? That was, well, All that other stuff that was written over your heart, God, erase it, and you'll be just like brand new, clean slate. And yes, sometimes God does heal and transform instantly. But being honest, that, that's very rare. Very rare. My experience is that this is, it's, it's a journey, a journey that, that, that I'm inviting you into. I'll be your tour guide. I don't have all the answers, but I know who does. I can point you to someone who can give you those answers. You get your heart right with God by letting the one who designed you define you. You get your heart right with God by letting the one who designed you define you. You get your heart right with God by seeing God the right way, that he's not for you, he's against you. You get your heart right with God by allowing him to heal your heart. Have the courage to pray that prayer that David prayed. Oh, God, search my heart. But be, hey, you better be, be ready because he will. And you get your heart right with God when you invite him into your future. Take your next step and invite God into your future. And I'll even make you a guarantee. This sounds like an infomercial, doesn't it? But wait, there's more. But there is more. If you'll give us, if you'll give Family Church one year of your life, and, and by, by giving us, I'm, I'm talking about you'll get plugged in with us, you'll take the next class, you'll get plugged into a growth group, you'll start serving on one of our dream teams. If you'll do that, give us one year, here's the guarantee. I guarantee you at the end of the year that your life will be better, your marriage will be better, your family will be better, you'll, you'll have a better outlook at your job, all those different things if you'll commit to one year, right? Seriously. And here's my guarantee. If you'll do those things, I mean, don't just, you know, don't just dip the toe in. I mean, jump in with us. If you'll do those things, at the end of a year, if your life isn't better, your marriage isn't better, your kids aren't any better, then you can have your old life and your old marriage and your old kids back, no questions asked. How's that? Are you guys awake? You're here this morning. Maybe you're not in a close relationship with God, but you would like to be. Now would be the time to take care of that. If you'd bow your heads, I want to pray for you. Lord, forgive us for those times that we've looked to anything or anyone other than you for our identity. Help us begin to, to just look to you, the one who designed us. Help us look to you to define us. As we lean into you, help us see clearly who you are, that you're not against us. You're for us. Give us the courage to pray like the psalmist, search my heart, O God, and erase all those things that you haven't written on it. And help us to choose to invite you into our future. And if you haven't done that, or maybe you used to be closer to God than you are now, but some of your life experiences wrote some things over your heart. You got sidetracked from, from God's purpose. Hey, it's not too late to get back on track. If that's what you want, it would be my honor to lead you in a prayer where that can happen. It's the easiest thing that you'll ever do, but it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. It's an all or nothing proposition. Jesus gives you his life, and all he wants in return is your life. 
but it will be the best decision you ever made. If that's you, if you would just pray this prayer, say, Jesus, today I choose to repent and surrender my life to you, my heart to you. Forgive me, change me, fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me begin to live my life for you. Give me faith and courage to do whatever it takes to follow you at all times and help me keep my heart open and honest before you. Thank you for dying for me. And today I put my faith in you and I look to you for my security and my identity. So fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me begin to live and move and have my being in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.